sight. Caterpillar to a butterfly. It's green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. A small world for sure. In the last hour, we talked with Bodie Panisi about holiday plants. And now, coming up in hour number two of Green and Growing, Mark Hoban, who is the golf course superintendent at Rivermont Golf Club in Johns Creek, Come to find out, we have both worked with Bodie recently. Mark is really in touch with the University of Georgia system and the research they're doing, and he's doing a lot on his own that golfers could learn from and other superintendents throughout the state could learn from. Interesting guy. Let me take you out on the course with me and Mark. We're on number 14, the par 3, our signature. Golfers are used to seeing the really green putting greens, right? And over time in your decades of doing this, you've seen a transition in the grasses used for putting greens. Right. Yeah, Atlanta, uh, when I first got in the business, was bent grass, and that was king. And up until 15 to 20 years ago, maybe 2010, uh, roughly, then courses started transitioning to the Ultra Dwarf Bermuda, and nobody's looked back. There's not been one conversion back to bent, but all the bent boys are converting to Bermuda because it's just superior in putting quality year-round as opposed to the ups, ups and downs of a bent grass that comes out of northern Europe and grows to a height of 12 inches and you're in hot, humid Atlanta where it's just, just brutal to manage it through a summer. Does this stay green? It's Bermuda. I would think it's going to go dormant now. Actually, the, um, the answer is we paint it. Well, I just revealed a secret. <laughs> but, uh, okay, well, tell me the advantages. I mean, not much mowing required. Correct. So from November 1st until March, you know, we're blowing off the clippings. We'll still mow it once a week just to get off any imperfections. Uh, we'll still roll it, but yeah, we reduce the maintenance. We actually want the plant to go dormant because then we don't have to uh, deal with the disease issues. And the neat thing about going dormant, all of a sudden they glass out, they get really fast, so that's the golfer kind of likes that. And from our vantage point here, looking down the hill, there are so many slopes, and you've talked about having to get rid of trees, but incorporating grasses, there's water features, all this kind of thing. In my view right now, I'm looking at fescue, zoysia, and Bermuda. And then the native grass is a broom sedge, little blue stem. So we have all sorts of colors and heights, uh, texture differences. So it's really attractive. And the high grasses frame the holes for the golfers. And uh, it's also a nice nesting area for the wildlife that really is incorporated for the golfer. Now, what would you say is an advantage of the broom sedge for a homeowner? You don't mow it. You don't fertilize it. You don't use pesticides. You don't irrigate it. So it's kind of a, a maintenance-free type of yard. But, you know, most homeowners want, want a little bit more than uh, just that natural look. But it gives some good motion, too, some good movement out on the course on a windy day. Sure. And you've got the color differences because it's a warm season. It'll be green in the summer and you could mow it once a year. And then you've got that pumpkin orange color in the fall, which is really, to me, a wow. So, yeah, it's a beautiful thing and it'll bring in the uh, bring in the wildlife into the purview. And you're self-sustaining in that you obtain the seeds from this and you're able to just continuously plant it. Correct. We'll harvest the seed every fall and, and then go back in the spring and, and put in new areas. So we've gone from a wall-to-wall Bermuda course to taking out 35 acres and putting it in these native grasses. And just every time I say that, just think of all the things we're not having to do culturally to manage it. We kind of let it go. And, and so we're really sustainable in that respect. Mark, out of the eyes of golfers, for the most part, we are looking at three beehives on the property. What's your goal to have how many? 
Right. We're going to have an apiary with 10 hives here and produce enough honey that we can manage it uh, for the restaurant and the club. And if people want to buy it, we'll sell it to them. And you've had the hives for about four years. You said, what are some of the challenges? All right. Well, I'm into natural beekeeping, which means I don't treat with the pesticides, the sugar water. I haven't been very successful. I've had some over winter, but I haven't really harvested a lot of honey yet. Uh, so this year, because of the varroa mite uh, situation, the hive beetles, we've gone ahead and, and checked and treated as necessary. So we're stepping up our game to, to help the bee, but we still want the strongest bees to uh, survive, and, and we're, not, we're not going overboard with uh, the sugar water situation, just enough to make sure they survive winter. And in the construction of the hives, you were just explaining to us, there's a little less disruption. Right, a horizontal hive, it's a three-quarter inch wood as opposed to the thin wood. Uh, we don't have, uh, the frames will hold 18 pounds of honey. They're, they're about, oh, at least double the size of a normal Langstroth frame. These are Layens frames, and um, we don't have to lift the hive and move uh, supers up and down, so there's no disruption. The objective in this space to put wildflowers nearby, and that makes a lot of sense. We're up in our game on the pollinators. We've put in four new pollinator gardens this year. We're going to do the wildflowers. The only hard thing is the weed control. We really struggle with that. And Bodie Panisi was on the show not too long ago from the University of Georgia telling us how to kind of put together our own mixes, what the wildflower mixes need to include. What look are you trying to achieve? As natural as can be, and it's hard to say a meadow of wildflowers is natural, so we're kind of steering off of the, the main thoroughfare for the golfer, but it's off to the side where those that want to look or walk can, we give them that opportunity. And the neat thing is, as we educate our members, more and more want to start noticing these things, and they're starting to point it out to their guests, hey, take a look at the wildflowers or the bluebird boxes, or they're asking, what, what is that plant, because I want to bring one to my house. So that educational thing is starting to cycle pretty well. Well, talking about Dr. Bodie, Clint Waltz from UGA as well, how close have you worked with the University of Georgia, and for how many years? Clint, your predecessor, uh, Dr. Landry, from Word Go, so I don't know how long ago that was, and I, I don't, you've been there 20 21 years, so at least my whole career, so that was the uh, mid-70s. My boss, Palmer Maples, taught me uh, to work with the researchers because he had them doing projects on club grounds, and so I got that relationship with them, and it's just grown and grown, and if I'm not at work, that's where I want to go, the University of Georgia. How would you encourage younger superintendents who maybe don't have that relationship or intimidated by fledging that relationship? What's the importance there? When these guys talk, go sit with them at the lunch table. And even if you're shy, you can listen to them and then start writing to them. Text them a question because they will respond. I would think their complaint is not enough people are from the profession are, are asking an, enough questions to give us some uh, ways to input all our knowledge. Mark, again, for the homeowner, compost tea. A lot of folks have probably heard of it. What is it? We're using uh, thermal, which is heated compost, and verma, which is worm compost. And we're putting it in a bag and then bubbling it out of a fine mesh screen into the vat of water. So all the microbes are blowing off of the compost into the water. And then once it's in the water, we'll, we'll give it some food like molasses and fish hydrolysate. Keep that oxygen going at max flow, and that's going to start the breeding process. And they'll start doubling in size uh, every 20 minutes after a given 10, 12 hours. The microbes? 
the microbes, and that's what we'll end up spraying on our greens or fairways or teas. This is compost tea, and you've been able to drastically reduce the amounts of fertilizer that you're using on the course. I mean, the numbers are astounding. We were averaging for 10 years uh, two, two and a half pounds of nitrogen, synthetic nitrogen a year on our fairways, and we were able to reduce it. I talked to my owner, and we bought the equipment. I said, we'll save that money in fertilizer. And so we did that, and the first year we were right under a pound of nitrogen, and then we dropped it down to 0.62 pounds the following year, and then 0.38 pounds the third year, and it it was kind of a game at that point. How low can I go? And that fourth year, we tried lower, and we were thinning out with all the traffic and my owner's like you know you got to nuke these fairways get 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 some grass to recover and so we had to get to a balance so we're roughly around seven tenths seventy five hundredths of a pound of nitrogen a year on the fairways that's a huge cost savings how far is too far you don't know how far too far is until you've gone yeah, yeah, too yeah. far. And then the owner lets you know. <laughs> and that, and, right, and that's the game, you know, how far can I go? So, yeah, I found out. I'm kicking and screaming before I put out a fungicide. All of us have the ultra-dwarf greens. You know, the pathologists are saying you need to treat preventatively for spring dead spot because it's very deadly, especially on your bread and butter, your greens, and we haven't treated. And I keep asking um, our people down in University of Georgia, have you ever seen those symptoms on ultra-dwarf greens? And, you know, Dr. Martinez has said, no, he's not. So I haven't. But my counterparts are spending thousands thousands of dollars every year to make sure preventatively that they don't and I'm not so I am sticking my neck out in that sense but since I haven't seen it why should I because what I feel we've created here is a soil that's less susceptible to to plant diseases because of such a low usage rate of of these things because you know all the fungicides are great but they knock out all the weak links, you know, the ones that are going to survive are, are going to be the stronger players. And so by not using them, when I do have to use them, we can go the low end rates and, and still feel successful. But I do use them. I'm not an idiot. I, you know, I'm not going to lose grass and lose my job because I don't spray. But we're doing it preventatively, so it has to keep me on the edge a lot more. The, the, the fungus is, is a soil-borne organism. The name is a bit of a misnomer. You see it in the spring and it's a dead spot, but the fungus actually does the damage in the fall of the year. So it's active right now. Here we are in the first part of November, and that's what most people don't realize is that you've got to control it now or you wind up having a situation where you've got the natives in the soil that kind of keep it at bay. Um, but it's We're not going to know till spring. You're not going to know any spring, but this is a soil-borne organism. So the things that Mark's doing there to try to, to improve soil health, maybe helping him out in abatement of, of a potentially problematic disease. But yeah, you won't know until the spring What's of the year. That that's, that's the struggle that I need with science on my side is what am I doing that is helping me to be more sustainable? What, what am I doing that's knocking me back and making it more conducive? I don't know. So it's, it's kind of these ocean waves. I think we're in the right path. I can see it year to year. But and most of my counterparts, want they want it dogmatic. They want that research paper says, you do this, this, and this. You will not have it. Okay, I'm going with that until somebody else proves you can do it organically. And, and you can't just flip a light switch. I am going organic and it happens. It's a three, four, five-year process. Fortunately for us, when we switched to the compost tea, we saw the results the first year. It just happened to be maybe that cycle or whatever. We had an old course, so we had a lot of nutrients that just needed to be mined out of the soil. And so that's how it began. 
Okay, now we are here where some tree work's being done off to the side, and this is kind of your compost row, so to speak. What goes into these piles of compost? You know, we harvest a lot of leaves off in the fall, and we go around the neighborhood and vacuum their leaves, and we use those as uh, as our browns, if you will. You need green and brown, and um, and then we cut down a lot of trees, and we chip them up ourselves, and we'll use that, and then. We have somebody uh, that works for me that she, Rebecca, will make this lactobacillus, which is just a milk bacteria, and we'll spray that on as we're spreading the material out, and that is an accelerator. And the neat thing is that we can make static piles that don't have to flip them and generate the heat, so we do that in the winter. And four months later, it's even breaking down the, the wood chip cellulose, which is, which is tough to break down, but it makes a beautiful compost. And then we take a shaker screen and screen it out so we can use it with our top dress on teas and fairway areas. Anytime you're adding organic matter and, and you're increasing your soil health by all that microbial populations you're adding, and it's helped us reduce our nutrient needs. Uh, it's helped the soil be uh, more arable, if, if you will. We're seeing a lot more worm activity, and so they're tunneling and doing their thing as well. Good soil is a good basis for any gardener, be it a home gardener or a golf course superintendent. When we come back, more of what Mark Hoban has up his sleeve, his plans for himself and for Rivermont Golf Club, next on WSB. The weather update brought to you by Finley Roofing and back with Mark Hoban at Rivermont Golf Club. Another thing I'm trying to work on, Ashley, with the city of Atlanta is biosolids because they've got a new manufacturing process that they're creating a lot of heat-kilned uh, biosolids. And so we've done some testing there, and I'm, they're scaled to where they need to get rid of it. They're not allowed to bury it anymore. What are biosolids exactly? Biosolids are just um, all the... Uh, sewage from uh, human waste okay. and, and industry. City of Atlanta has to do, process it and do something with it. I think that's a real win-win, but right now we're struggling with a too foul a smell, and so that has to be on their part to figure that one out and making sure there's not too much heavy metals in it. That's my goal for the next phase, I guess. So malorganite kind of does that same type thing in the Midwest, like Wisconsin, maybe Milwaukee or something. That's kind of how that's based, right? Correct. I mean, I, I've known that since the early 70s and, and before. So yes, that's how they get rid of their waste. They mill it up and, uh, and package it and still sell it today. Atlanta could be there, and they are doing some of that, but they're processing so many tons per day that they need a place to get rid of it. So they are looking at farms and things like that, but I think a golf course would be a great home run for them, tell a great story, but they've got to get some things right. And you say the next phase. What is the next phase for you? I'm smiling back at you because um, I think up these things and then I just want to go do them. And, and unfortunately or fortunately, my owner, Chris Cupid, has given me all the rope uh, to hang myself and it just keeps getting longer and longer. So I don't, I don't want to stop um, because it's, I'm having a ball um, and I, I just want to keep, keep rolling with it. I love it. See some of the videos Mark and I shot together right now on the Facebook page. Search Green and Growing WSB. When we come back, tips for properly planting a tree this time of year on WSB. Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries on 955 WSB. 
Welcome back. So one of the experts I rely on, Seth Hawkins with the Georgia Forestry Commission. We visited with him every Saturday in the month of October. He gave us the update on the Georgia Leaf Watch and the beautiful fall color that we enjoyed this year. And at that time, I talked to Seth about why fall is best to plant trees. He gives us the reasons why and some great advice on how to properly plant those trees. Now, you said to me, um, when the leaves start falling, that signals you as a gardener to do something. So trees, they drop their leaves. Um, a lot of native wildlife and insects use tree, you know, fall leaf color and fall leaf drop is kind of a bio signal to them. Like, hey, it's time to get ready for overwintering. For our uses, that's the time, okay, the trees are going dormant. That's a good, nice, safe time to start planting trees. So I heard y'all talking about it earlier, talking about planting fruit trees. You know, go ahead and get them in the ground in the fall. I know Arbor Days in early spring, late winter, early spring, but really I'm a big advocate of getting them in the ground in the mm-hmm. fall, letting those roots go ahead and get some growth on them and start getting ready and established for that spring. Now, what do you do for soil prep? Do you just go all in a tizzy and do all of these crazy things or keep it pretty simple? Well, I'm planting a tree in my backyard, which hopefully today I'm going to get it in the actually a ginkgo and a silky dogwood oh. planted in my yard this afternoon. So I really like to take just a little hand rototiller and just till out a really big area. I mean, as big as you feel like you got the effort and energy to do. So the more compaction you can break up laterally, that's going to help the tree a lot. So the majority of your tree's roots are going to be in the top 18 inches of soil. And roots really like to grow out more than they like to grow down. So if we break up that compaction nice and wide, dig a nice, really wide, shallow hole, and that's a big mistake we see is trees being planted too deep. As far as soil amendments, you know, I'm a big advocate of just using the native soil you pulled out of the hole. If you are going to incorporate anything, you know, maybe some compost, maybe some mycorrhizae spores. Um, But again, if you add anything in there, you just want to make sure it's really good and homogenized. You don't want to have different soil textures button up right up against each other. Uh, you'll end up with just wonky, asymmetrical root growth if you end up having that issue. And that'll show on the tree as well, kind of one side a little more lush and healthy than the other. Well, even that, and it also it just could lead to ultimately just, you know, structural issues, more susceptible to wind throw when you have a not, you know, if you have an asymmetrical root system that can just make them sometimes a little less structurally sound. Um, when we're talking about ornamental trees, not as big of a deal, but if you happen to be planting an oak tree or a sycamore or something this fall, um, you know, that's going to be a big tree one day. So you want it to have as big and symmetrical and round as a root system as possible. And like you said, breaking up that soil really well, crumble it through your fingers, whatever you need to do to be able to backfill that hole. And when you say don't plant too deeply, what's a sign to us looking at the base of a trunk that it's been planted too deep? So um, right at the base where we call the root collar, so you'll kind of see a slight texture change where it turns from the trunk of the tree into the top of that root collar. Some species are a little easier to see than others, but you'll see a swelling and a little texture change. You want to see that up above ground level, especially if it's a larger containerized tree with more weight on it. you got to remember when you water that in, it's going to settle a oh, little bit. Right. So if it's a big like 30-gallon tree, plant it maybe an inch above grade. If it's like a five-gallon tree, just plant it right at grade. Probably not going to be a ton of settling. Seth Hawkins from the Georgia Forestry Commission. We're in the middle of a great conversation um, about trees, and you were talking about uh, establishment, not planting them too deeply. This is the time of year to go and plant them, though, Seth. But talking about whether it's a five-gallon tree, something a little bit larger, how important it is to ensure that you haven't planted too deeply. You can still see that root collar, that root flare above ground. Again, that's that's the number one uh, mistake that I see made with tree planting is uh, they get put, you know, just too deep. Um, 
And so what basically happens is the tree just feels suffocated. A lot of its gas exchange happens at the top of that root system, at that root flare. And so the tree just basically thinks it's, it's planted too deep. It, it realizes that and starts trying to raise its root system. Then you start getting these little circling roots around the base of the tree. So planting too deep just kind of makes the tree, it's going to leaf off early. It's going to leaf out late. It's just always going to kind of be struggling. So it's something really important to look out for. If you're going to do anything right with planting a tree, just make sure it's planted nice and shallow. I always like to tell folks when you walk in the woods, what do you see at the bottom? You see a nice buttress. You see that thing nice and shallow up out of the ground. So. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter whether we are you know, buying trees this season, bald and burlapped versus containerized, kind of the same idea for soil prep and planting, right? The, the big differences are going to be obviously the size of the hole you dig for a bald and burlap tree. So you want your hole to be at least twice as wide as the root ball you're putting into the hole. So you can see if it's a five-gallon tree, maybe not a huge hole. A 30-gallon container tree is getting bigger. If you're talking about a two-inch caliper bald and burlap tree, obviously that's going to be a pretty substantial hole. The big differences there are with a containerized tree, there's a lot more circling roots usually to undo. So just, you know, take those and try to gently tease those out. Sometimes you do have to take a grub saw and cut some larger circling roots out of a container root ball. With bald and burlap, the big things are just make sure it's even more shallow because, with you know, you're talking three to 500 pounds sometimes on those trees, maybe yeah. even more. When you That's going to settle even more. So if you're planting B&B, sometimes I'll plant those almost two inch with this root flare up above grade, wow. water it in really good. And when I say really good, I mean like flood the thing. There's going to be <laughs> runoff. It's going to be a puddle. It's going to look like you're, you're just bringing the 40-year flood to it. But that's what that's going to do is flush those air pockets out, ensure nice root to soil contact down inside that, that plant hole, and it should make for a lot happier, healthier start for the tree. Well, once we irrigate it that well and we've got some puddling or we've got some you know water pooling at the soil surface, once all of that drains down, are we going to have to move any soil kind of back into place? Will it have shifted around a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So sometimes after you do that, it's a little bit of a muddy adventure, but you might want to, you know, you might have some, just basically some washout from, from doing yeah. all that watering. Ideally, you water it nice and slow, um, ideally. Um, but if you do happen to have some runoff, just make sure you don't have any roots exposed directly to the air and just get everything nice and kind of sloped away from that root flare. Um, if you are going to build a soil ring, a little basin to hold water, um, you know, I don't normally do that just because I like to, I want that water to run away from the base of the tree to my feeder roots that are growing out away from the stem. If you do build a soil ring or a basin, just make sure to tear that down after that first growing season. Go back and just scrape that out flat because at that point the roots should be getting out past that basin. Hmm. Yeah, I see those. So they're not necessarily wrong. That's just a different way of doing it, but it doesn't need to stay. I just always get concerned because if they get left, what can happen is the roots will grow up to the surface of that berm and then stick out the backside. And then all of a sudden you've got more surface roots in your lawn. Oh, all yeah. Of a sudden. No, we don't want that. Okay. And then what did you start to say about bald and burlap? Oh, with bald and burlap, you know, there's a lot of different takes on, um, uh, you know, on how much of that burlap and that cage to take off. Um, you know, I've seen folks take the entire basket off, um, but I've also seen that make the root balls fall apart as you're trying to work it into the hole. Mm-hmm. I've also seen folks not take any of that off, and I have um, I've pulled enough dead trees up out of the ground with the old rusty basket to know that that does have some impact, yeah, I think, on gosh, the trees. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the International Society of Arboriculture Specs is just to try to get, you know, at least half, two-thirds of that cage and that burlap off. Again, I mentioned that 18 inches number earlier. That's always my goal. I want to get it in the hole and then dress it, at least get at least that top 18 inches of the burlap and the cage off just to allow those roots to get out of that root ball and start growing out. I mean, that cage, we're talking, we probably need some kind of wire cutters or something to really get that off like it needs to be, right? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I carry um, one of my tree planting tools is a set of bolt cutters mm-hmm. for that reason right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
That's right. Um, and then with containerized trees, Seth, do we need to get rid of the soil that it comes to us with from the nursery? People are always amazed at how rough I am with a containerized root ball. Um, but again, it's just inherent in the way you grow a tree in a pot. You're going to have circling roots. Mm-hmm. So it's really important once they start that circling pattern, typically they'll stay in that circling pattern. So this is our chance to get those, again, growing radially out as spokes from the tree. So, you know, folks are always amazed at how rough I am with it because I'll kind of take it and beat it up. In that process, I do lose some of the, quote, you know, nursery soil that came with it. But, you know, as long as you're taking that soil and just mixing it in with the native soil that's around it, um, but you don't want to go to the point of beating the root ball to the point you take all the dirt off of it. So okay, and just make sure anything that comes out of that pot, just make sure if it gets loose away from the root ball that it's just mixed in really well with the surrounding soil. All right, and every Saturday for the last month or so, Seth has joined us with, with an update on the Georgia Leaf Watch and Leaf Color in North Georgia. Uh, peak was last weekend. So now, of course, we're at the point, Seth, where we have all the leaves that are falling uh, in the landscape, around the house, whatever. So what's your recommendations on, you know, I've been harping on that, leaving the leaves, don't bag them and, and give them to the, the trash company. Uh, that's, I mean, that's liquid gold it's actually really good nutrients that are free to you but mulching the leaves not mulching the leaves what say you there's a lot of different approaches it really depends on what you're wanting to do with it so you know in an ideal world you know those leaves that fell below that tree are the nutrients the exact set of nutrients and fertilizer that that tree needs that drop that leaf so in the ideal world you could just leave them um and just let them sit there and, and you know ideally just let again let it totally sit because that does provide a lot of habitat for a lot of native insects Luna moths, a lot of different caterpillars and stuff actually overwinter in those fallen leaves. And so mulching them will break them down a lot faster. So if you run over them with the mower, you know, run it up into your bag, your mower bag, and then use them in your flower bed, obviously it's going to break down a lot faster. Mm-hmm. But also there is, you know, the you're giving up the idea that you're are taking away some habitat for native insects. So, you know, again, you I just encourage everybody, if you're just don't bag them, like you said, mulch yeah. them. Put them in your flower beds, around your trees. Just try to keep them on the on your property if you can, because that's what your soil needs. And there's a whole ecosystem. You talk about overwintering insects. I mean, a whole ecosystem that loves living under those leaves and is kept safe and kind of nice and cozy just from leaving them where they are. Yeah, and some you know some insects their their eggs overwinter. Some um, the pupae you know overwinter in there. They're already hatched and they just kind of live in that first instar of their life. But yeah, and so with a lot of our native insects, um, and the, a lot of those native insects play a huge role in you know fighting off non-native insects, helping to just keep the natural balance of our native ecosystem in you know in place. Good advice. That's really some good food for thought and some good things to think about. Well, hey, Seth, thanks for hanging uh, over with me for an extra five or ten minutes. We covered some good ground. Uh, no pun intended. How can folks find y'all online? Uh, go to gatrees.org. It's our website. Um, there, If you go on there, um, also on our YouTube channel, if you just go to YouTube, search Georgia Forestry Commission. Tons of great resources, awesome videos. There's a video called Planting Containerized Trees on our YouTube channel. Yeah. And it's actually myself going start to finish. You plant the tree, water it in, you mulch it, all that good stuff. Free resources to help you be most successful in your landscape, especially this time of year establishing trees and shrubs. I myself planted a rising sun redbud just about a month ago. Can't wait to see how it turns out. Well, coming up in hour number three of the show, the Outdoor Expert Series continues more from Rick Smith, the pruning guru and landscape architect Bruce Holiday. They share tips on pruning as well as advice for hiring the right man or woman for the job. Stay tuned. You're listening to Green and Growing on WSB.
weather update brought to you by Finley Roofing. And one of my favorite things to do on the show is this. Green and Growing! Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Here's your garden to-do list this week. All right. Number one, meteorologist Christina Edwards and I had a great conversation in the hallway just a few days ago. Talked about the warm weather right now and planting bulbs for daffodils, tulips, and hyacinth. Go ahead and get out there and do that. It's not too late. But you need to start getting that done. Get the spring flowering bulbs in the ground now. And keep in mind, if you want some tulips like she does, they need at least five hours of sun a day. Number two, if you've already brought your live Christmas tree home, enjoy it. And check the water level every few days. Make sure the water never gets lower than the base of the trunk. And number three, there's tons of holiday festivities around town this month. You can check out my list of events on the Green and Growing website at wsbradio.com slash green and growing. Scroll all the way down, and there you'll see green and growing events and also other things. You'll see articles that I've written for the WSB Radio newsletter that goes out every other Friday, a lot of questions that I receive from all of you, and I get expert answers, or I answer them myself and then share them for everybody, and also a chance to sign up for that newsletter right there, and also the podcast the show on demand. So every previous show that I've ever done is right there hour by hour. You can listen commercial free. I think there's a commercial at the beginning and then you're all set to listen to every hour of green and growing. So coming up in the coming weeks, for sure, excited to have a few guests in the studio before we head to Christmas. Mickey Gazaway from Pike Nursery will be with me and Jeff Roth and Rafael Santiago from Premier Tree Solutions. ChopMyTree.com will also be in studio. Looking forward to sharing the holidays with all of you. We'll be right back. Hour number three of Green and Growing coming at you fast. Stay tuned on 95.5 WSB.